Good morning, everybody, and happy Friday to you. My name is Connor Collins. I am a registered massage therapist and sports injury therapist. And welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode number 98, where I had the pleasure of having a discussion with Whitney Lowe. Whitney is a licensed massage therapist, a massage therapy educator, and has been for over three decades in the United States. And during this conversation, we discussed the evolution of massage therapy, the evolution of practice and massage therapy education, as well as some business aspects of the massage therapy industry. This was a really enjoyable conversation. I hope that you sit back relax and enjoy the interview and we will see you in the next one everybody and happy Friday to you. Just piggybacking off of a great interview last week with uh, Ashley Brzezicki regarding end-of-life care and hospice care and uh, look really looking forward to this afternoon's or morning's conversation depending upon where you're at in the world. Uh, but today's guest is, is Whitney Lowe and uh, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about today is uh, Whitney you were one of the individuals when I first started in practice consuming content early, looking for massage therapists at the time that were putting out, you know, really great relevant information to towards the career of massage therapy at the time. So it, it's really a, a come full circle moment for me. And so I, I really do appreciate you taking the time, first of all, because I know you're really, really busy, but I'm also uh, equally looking as forward to just uh, learning from you today. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's always great to be here. And I love having these kind of conversations. So um, I'm certainly looking forward to it as well. Yeah. So when I was thinking, uh, Whitney, about today's podcast, you know, I know that you've been in the in the field for so, so long, and you've probably evolved so much. And I think that one of the the great things about this field is it is a practice in and of itself, and we're continuing to evolve day by day. And I wonder if you could just start by giving a little bit of the listeners a background about yourself for those of the few of them that might not know who you are and how you first came about the field of massage therapy and what drew you to it um, to begin your journey as a manual therapist. Sure, absolutely. So um, I was um, in graduate school studying psychology back in the mid-1980s and was planning to be a, a counselor. That's sort of the trajectory that I was on. And uh, was also exploring a number of different things related to sort of alternative health, you know, endeavors at that time as well. And got uh, introduced to massage and uh, was sort of looking at some of the bigger and broader aspects of the mind-body connection. Uh, You know, I had been interested in some of the, what are considered, I don't know, some of the more fringe aspects of the psychology movement, the the transpersonal psychology and self-actualization and all that kind of stuff. So. You know, I've been introduced to the sort of the human potential movement of the 60s and 70s and was looking at a lot of those kinds of things. And and, uh, my introduction to massage was something that made me start looking at, well, there's really 
a lot of crossover here of, of things. There's a lot of people exploring a lot of the the body's experience in, in the psychological realm. And so I thought, um, well, this is really fascinating. And at that time, I was actually getting kind of burned out in my graduate school program. And I thought, well, you know, I could take this, I could take a little break and go to massage school and, you know, learn some things about uh, the body and then make that uh, a, sh- a way to make, you know, have that be a little way to make money in my own schedule. And I really, I was kind of doing it just as a means for having some additional income, doing some things on my own schedule without really intending to get involved with massage at all in the long term. But like so many people, when I went to massage school, it dramatically changed me. And um, I, it was like, just like an explosion in my head of the things that were going on in this field and the things that were happening. And I really began to investigate and look at a lot of these different elements. And I got so fascinated and, and you know, magnetically pulled into this field that I never went back to finish my, my master's degree program and been doing massage ever since. I have been in and out of school quite a number of times since then, because I'm always looking for the next new great educational adventure. But I also, you know, I'm a big advocate of that uh, quote that I think is originally attributed to Mark. I think this is to Mark Twain about don't let school get in the way of your education. And so for me, that's also been true is that, you know, sometimes school is the right thing. And sometimes there's other methods that'll be really great learning experience as well. So I'm always chasing the next great learning experience. So how many years have you been in the field now? Uh, let's see. Is I started in 1988, so I think that's uh, it's about I think that's 33 if my math is correct um, now. So about yeah, a little over three decades. And I assume that three decades, because in our field the research is so relatively new when you compare it across you know um, some of the other topics. And so for you, I imagine that the way that you practiced 30 years ago is probably entirely different than the way that you practice now. Would that be, be accurate? I mean, I'm sure there are still some things that you take with you, but you've had so much opportunity to pursue education over the course of your career and then see this huge evolution and push in the research of just paramedical medicine in general. Yeah. Can we speak to that off the top? Yeah. So one of the things that, that's, I think, kind of interesting to, to share and recognize with, with people who are kind of, especially some of your listeners who may be relatively new to the field and, and are just sort of getting into this and getting their eyes opened about, you know, how to do research and keep up with things. And, you know, back at the time when I was getting started, you know, the internet didn't really exist. And so, you know, this has been such a huge boon for so many people to be able to share information and, and get access to things relatively quickly. And, you know, for me, I was extremely lucky in that I grew up and lived uh, just a couple miles away from any Emory University Medical School. And so I would go over to the medical library and just go in there and just, you know, sort of, where is it going to take me today? You know, I would just like not really have a, an intention, but I would go look things up and, you know, look at, I'd go live in the orthopedic section because that's the stuff that I was really drawn to is, is looking at the musculoskeletal things and you know, at that point, you know, you, you find a great book or an interesting thing and it's got articles referenced in it and you go look up those articles. And then in that article, there's reference to something else that you want to go look up. So you go find that journal, pull it off the shelf and try to go make a photocopy of it. And then there's another article. Oh, this is going to be great. You go look for it. And like, oh no, it's gone. Somebody took the book off the shelf. I need that article. You know, so finding research was really a digging process back at that time. And, um, but it made you really, I think, uh, 
recognize the value of all of the things that were out there. And so that a lot of that began to really influence the way I was practicing. And also at that time, I was working in an orthopedic clinic that was affiliated with the medical school. So we had medical residents coming through there. So it was a really a teaching and learning kind of environment. So that had really influenced me a great deal. But, you know, the, the question that you ask is really interesting because I think if, because somebody made this analogy one time and I thought it was a great analogy. If someone had taken a videotape of me doing a session in, you know, 1991 or something like that, when I was working at the orthopedic clinic and took a videotape of me working with somebody now and turned the sound off, you probably wouldn't see a lot of things that were grossly different in the way I'm actually using my hands and doing things. But what has dramatically evolved and changed a great deal is my my understanding of what's happening as I'm working, my conversations with the client about what is going on, what I think is happening, you know, the processes that I would go through to sort of assess and evaluate the nature of what my client's current situation is to try to construct an appropriate treatment strategy. All of those are a lot of cognitive processes, more so than the psychomotor skills. And I'd say that has changed tremendously and a, a great deal since that time without probably the same degree of change in the actual hands-on manipulation of soft tissue of what I'm actually doing with my hands. Yeah, I couldn't agree with more with that sentiment. I've, I've been in practice about 15 years and I think that the way that I practiced on day one and the way that I practice now probably looks quite similar, maybe a little mm -hmm. bit more gentle in nature, but I think you're right where when I first came out of school, I, I thought that I did know everything and had a very reductionist view of things um, because a lot of the time that's how things were taught to me. And a lot of the time, even in the things that we read, that is, is how we consume them, looking for whether it be the, the magic bullet, the quick fix, the magical fix. But what you understand the more you read is, number one, and I think this is true for everybody, and I've heard it many times, that the more research you do, you realize the less you know. Certainly, yeah. And just the the complexity of the human body, the complexity of the person in front of you and the experience that they're bringing to you, and then how do you best relay that to fit whatever story they're telling, I think really becomes the challenge of the seasoned therapist if they're willing to undertake that process. If you were to provide advice to somebody on how they could begin that journey now having done it yourself, what would you say? Because I think I agree with you, the access to information is easier than ever before, but not all information is good information. Yeah, that's that's the flip side of the coin is that there's a lot more out there that's not good information now too. And the, the real trick uh, becomes um, separating the wheat from the chaff and you know what's what's the good stuff and what's really not. And, and this gets down to critical thinking and clinical reasoning processes. And this is something that I have you know worked tirelessly on trying to emphasize in a lot of the courses and things that I'm doing, because I think that's really at the, at the key, really at the foundation of it all is, is getting people to be able to think critically and develop some reasoning skills to be able to evaluate what is good stuff, what is not good stuff, and ask some of the challenging questions and, and question authority and, and do those kinds of things. That's not easy. It's, you know, it's certainly not easy to do in an entry-level training program. And when you get into the continuing education realm, it's not 
sexy to try to sell that in a course. So, you know, what ends up happening is the vast majority of courses become about new techniques and new modalities. But I really think if you want to become the most skillful and uh, successful type of practitioner working on developing some of those kinds of analytical and reasoning skills and digging deep and questioning things, that's going to take you so much farther than just accumulating a whole bunch of different techniques or modalities. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And when I first started my training, that's almost all the, the bulk of the courses I took was uh, technique-driven courses. Some people will speak negatively of that experience. I, I don't speak negatively of of it at all. I think that it served certainly a purpose at the time. And one of the things that it did was it surrounded me with other people that wanted to learn and you were able to like have conversations and even with some of the more technique driven courses that really talk about specificity of anatomy, you know, I was able to learn anatomy and understand that I had a real passion for it. And now I teach it. So everything served its purpose. And I, I really do appreciate some of those earlier courses where I'm kind of at now with, with our field is think that we are all moving in a direction of more whole person centered care and talking about some of the intangible things of our field, things like communication and maybe trying to not create a a disease or pathology out of something when there might not necessarily be one. And so I think that that's a really important process and thought experiment that we do need to go through and looking at the evidence there. I just question sometimes, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this, Whitney, about how do we really pull all of this together? Because even when we look at some of the the research on whether it be psychological influences on pain or social factors on pain, we're always looking at those particular elements within sort of a a reductionist viewpoint within the context of that paper and or if it's a, a controlled experiment within the controls of the design of that particular experiment. And I'd love to know from you as somebody that's been doing it for a really, really long time, how do you piece that all together in a package that you feel confident in delivering um, within uh, the person's experience in front of you? Well, you know, I think it's a lot of it is, is as you're talking about here is is spot on is looking at the the sense of, of holism and how does this all play into what I'm going to be doing with this individual. And, and one of the things that I think that has been really valuable in the the recent sort of move towards a more inclusive biopsychosocial model, what really is the key drivers on a lot of our therapeutic interventions with people. And in many instances, I think it's a lot less about the specific techniques and a lot more about our interactions with that individual. And for that reason, the unfortunate end of that pendulum is that a lot of people have sort of abandoned the idea of looking into some of these aspects of you know, more detailed anatomy, physiology, mechanics, et cetera, and said, well, it's all about the interaction. That's what it's really about. And uh, I think when you do that, you cut off a piece of the pie that can be really relevant because sometimes a really well-rounded understanding of anatomy and mechanics can be an extreme advantage in understanding how to grapple with a particular type of thing that a person is doing. You know, maybe you're talking about uh, home care education things that you can encourage them to avoid. And so when is something a red flag that really needs to go immediately to see an orthopedist or something like that? 
without that more detailed sort of anatomical mechanical element of that knowledge, then you're missing that piece there. So I think so much of it comes back to a balanced whole. There was a, another quote I heard on um, somebody's social media feed the other day in some discussion about, I think this was a discussion about biopsychosocial applications or something like that. And then somebody was talking about, you know, the move away from anatomically based or, or structurally based uh, challenges and problems. And, and this person said, pain is not necessarily indicative of tissue damage, which we hear frequently now, except when it is. You know, and that's the point is that sometimes these things are very much in the wheelhouse of sort of some of those earlier models that we focused a lot on where there is pain that is resulting from some type of, of tissue pathology of some kind. It's really helpful to be able to identify that and then also know a lot of times it isn't. And then when it's not, we go in a different branching direction of how we're going to pursue and, and work with things. But if you only develop and pursue one of those tracks of, of learning and, and uh, emphasis of your study, you'll miss things. And there will be things that I think you'll be less complete as a, as a clinician if, if, you're, if you're not doing sort of a well-rounded approach to looking at those kinds of problems. That's the big challenge, right? Is as we bring in this new information, regardless of what new information is to us, we really like to use that in practice, whether that's communication skills, because it's kind of new, it's exciting. Maybe some of the old stuff isn't maybe getting us the results that we once were, but I think you're right in that, you know, if, if we're going to pursue these more current models of, of dealing with people in complementary healthcare, again, that biopsychosocial part, we can't necessarily forget the biological part of it for all of the reasons that you said. And a lot of the time in, in my work in clinical practice and in teaching, I do talk a lot about red flags because I know that you're in, in the U.S. and I'm not sure if it's the same there. But one of the things that we see or are seeing a lot is people maybe moving away from their primary family care physician and coming in to see a physical therapist, a chiropractor, a massage therapist for their back pain first. Whereas maybe 10 or 20 years ago, they would go to their primary care physician who would then say, maybe here's some medication or maybe go and pursue some physical therapy or what have you. So if the models of medicine are changing in that respect, we need to be really good at the recognition of some of these red flags. And while we understand that red flags happen less often than not across an entire patient population, I still think it's important to look at a patient um, through that lens first and then dial it way back as you go. Like you said, you don't want to be the, the individual that maybe misses one of those. Something as simple as taking a blood pressure can go a really, really long way. It's a skill that for the most part we learn in school, depending upon where you're educated in the world. But I, I really harp on that. Just taking some uh, blood pressure and vital signs can often really, really help as a clinician, particularly if that person hasn't seen their primary care physician in some time. Yeah, I think you're so, so correct there. And that, you know, one of the times when this really just came ringing home to me, there was an article, I'm trying to remember when it came out, it seems like it was in the early 90s. And that particular study was duplicated a number of times. And it was talking about the uh, inadequacy of musculoskeletal education in general medical school training. And I really had no idea 
how little training many of the physicians got in basic musculoskeletal disorders because you know their training emphasized so much more about pharmacology life-threatening illnesses you know all times of diseases and processes and things that they had to know so much about but the common aches and pains of musculoskeletal medicine the, the tendonitis the minor ligament sprains the other you know muscle dysfunctions and things like that didn't really get a whole lot of attention and as a result many of the people in the in the population were seeking care in other places for those types of things and many of them are coming right off the bat to as you mentioned those that are specializing in more manual medicine the chiropractors the physios uh, massage therapists acupuncturists those people who are dealing more with body oriented practices and as a result you know if you look at the training in those different fields we are grossly deficient in my opinion in training to prepare us to be direct access healthcare providers where anybody can walk in off the street to our office with you know quite a wide variety of musculoskeletal disorders some of which may be quite serious and we have to make some decisions about you know what's going to happen with this person and that's that's why I've always advocated so much for like we got to you know pick up the pace a little bit if we're going to try to act like healthcare professionals we have to really we have to change some things in our education and training about it as well to your point, you cannot, I say this to students often, you don't control who comes through your door on day one. It could be a very, very complex case with a, a myriad of comorbidities or something to that nature. And as a, a new therapist, it's often a, quite a daunting task to see that first person, understand that you maybe don't have a clinical supervisor anymore to help, kind of help you through the, the process and just jump in head first. And so... I really do agree with you, and I think that there are certainly a variety of programs throughout both Canada and the United States now, some moving towards presenting, like you said, providing tools for the individual to be really prepared on day one, and I think that uh, certainly other provinces and states are doing a better job of that than others, but I think as well there's that element of experience that you do need to get a few years under your belt of practicing and taking these safety measures, recognition of red flags, and then treating people and seeing how people progress through a particular injury, I think is really, really valuable as well. And while it might not be hard uh, evidence, just having the process of walking people through and even just organizing your treatments on a time per time basis is, is valuable as well which is, I also think is something that's not necessarily taught in school. How do you just like navigate a half hour appointment or a one hour appointment with a person? And how much do you leave towards manual therapy versus education versus uh, exercise? All of these things are so valuable and often we're learning them when we get out there rather than learning them when we get in school. And I think maybe part of that may be the fault of the program, but part of it as well, I think is is somewhat necessary. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely true. And, and another thing that, that came to mind as you were talking about this too, that I think is so very important and, and not really talked about a lot in most of our educational programs, and that is the topic of interprofessional education. And this means like, do you really know what a physio does? Do you really know what an acupuncturist does and how they would approach a particular patient problem? And that ability to communicate, you know, we have lived, there's a lot of discussion nowadays about the fact that in, in the professional realm, we, we kind of live within these silos. We're, we're pretty cut off from interaction with a lot of other health professionals in most cases. Now, there's a lot of 
efforts to break down those silos and you see some, some fantastic examples of interdisciplinary clinics and inter, interdisciplinary work uh, going on. There's a conference going on down in uh, Arizona this uh, spring that is trying to bring together a whole bunch of uh, musculoskeletal uh, manual therapy practitioners from a wide variety of professions. And we need more things like that where we can start uh, talking to each other, sitting down and communicating with like, how do you approach this? How do you approach this? Because you know, we learn so much from really looking at uh, things through the lens of somebody else and, and seeing different perspectives and understanding how those things are approached from, uh, from other healthcare perspectives. And I think that's something I would l- really like to see us doing a, a good bit more, but it's going to take a, a, quite a bit of effort to get some greater understanding of from us about what other professions do and from other professions understanding what re- we really do, because clearly there's a lot of people who have some very gross misperceptions and misunderstandings about what happens in a massage therapy treatment room. Some of the moments where I've really learned a lot is through those kind of ground round style workshops where it's you, a physio, a chiro, maybe a sports medicine doctor, and you just kind of chat. And that often leads to someone maybe demonstrating a technique and not that that technique is necessarily any better than your technique, but it might be an alternate hand placement that's maybe easier for you, or it might be a different direction of pressure that feels better for an individual. And further to that point, some of the best learning experiences for me on my journey have been seeing people do something the exact same way that I would do it and just improve my confidence to be like, oh, I am only two years into practice and this person that's been doing it for 15 or 20 years and that's recognized as kind of an expert, if you want to use that title in the field, is doing it the exact same way as me. Because often when you're a newer therapist, you might be doing something and you just don't necessarily feel confident because you maybe haven't had those colleagues to, to maybe bounce ideas off or even just see how they do it. And sometimes when I teach, and I'm sure you're the same, people can often look at me and they go, oh, that, that's just it. That's, that's what you do. Being like, I'm doing the same thing. Yeah. Right. It's like, look, like I'm not doing anything amazing here. I'm Mm -hmm. just, you know, this is, you know, when I teach, it's something that I'm passionate about. It's the topics that I teach on. I want to try and, you know, deliver information to the conversation, but a lot of the time that's the response. And I feel like if I see that, where I am doing something the same way as somebody that's doing it for far longer than me and it's it's getting great results. I'm really happy with that because it's a great learning moment for me. Uh, but sometimes I think it's a little bit funny because they kind of go, oh, well, I thought I was going to get maybe more out of this than that. Right. There was a, um, a commercial that came out a couple of years ago and there's a, a sort of great metaphor there. And I can't remember exactly when this out a few years back. But it was an it was like a commercial for an iPhone or something like that, it, or it, or it was an Android phone. I can't remember, but they were making fun of each other, whichever way it was. But there was this guy that was going like, "The new phone is out." You know, they moved the headphone jack from the top to the side. Like, yeah, exactly. Wow, this is mind blowing. You know, and oftentimes I feel like that's kind of like what we're doing with a lot of these technique things. It's like you're taking your thumb or your fingers and you're moving up to down instead of down to up. And man, this is going to help everybody. You know, everybody's going to get better because we're doing it this way. You know, 
Yeah. Uh, everybody's got this. And that's been so much of the emphasis in, in the continuing education world. And I think this is you know probably true in both of our countries, as well as in many other countries around the world where massage is taught that in entry-level education, we learn some basic skills. Now, in several of the Canadian provinces, I think there's a whole lot more emphasis on training massage therapists to be healthcare professionals, but uh, that's not the way it is uh, in the States and in a number of other countries. So you're getting a a basic entry-level education, and then your sort of advanced training skills all come through continuing education courses. And it's not really a curriculum that's designed to achieve a particular goal. It's more like what you want to study, what do you want to pursue and study? And so, you know, if you're one of those people who is kind of uh, sucked into the newest, latest fad about things and think like, well, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, I'm going to go do that it may not be the best thing to give you kind of a well-rounded understanding of what's what you really need to be learning, but that's, that's kind of like, that's what sells, you know, that's, that's the market that's out there. Yeah. People like the idea of being able to, to learn a skill and that will fix the person and uh, being able to kind of market that heavily to people that this is, is the new answer. Yeah. And, and you know, that so much of that I think comes from, you know, we've talked before about sort of this reductionistic mindset, but like, I mean, let's, let's be serious here. This isn't just about massage school. This goes all the way back to our educational system in general, all the way back to, you know, first grade and, and kindergarten, all through our elementary and secondary education systems, because we're still in an education system that is, is oriented toward the industrial and agricultural ages. And it's not necessarily designed to be teaching people to be thinking individuals for the 21st century. So we, there's a whole lot of catch up that has to happen there. We've, we've been trained to be thinking in these more mechanistic and reductionistic ways ever since we were little kids. So it's not the kind of thing that's going to change quickly. And that's why it's, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard. I think. Like you said, it's just a more difficult process because you don't have an answer for everything you need to kind of search and combine a number of pieces of the puzzle to try and figure each person out. And that's been said for a long time that no ankle sprains the same, no persistent pain patients the same. But what we're really understanding is it's now more true than ever that we understand that there's just a host of potential contributing factors to what a person is going through that's in front of you. Right now, because you've been in practice for t some time, how much of your time is is dedicated towards teaching and how much of your time is dedicated towards clinical practice? Yeah, so a number of years ago, I actually left my clinical practice because I was trying to do too much. Um, I really felt like I was burning myself out trying to stay busy in the clinic. And I was traveling all over the country and, you know, around like a couple weekends a year, uh, I mean, a couple weekends a month. And, you know, my clients were getting kind of upset because I was never around. And I sort of had to do one of these evaluation things and said, all right, like, what do I feel like is my real passion, both, uh, but also what is my obligation to the profession? And what do I feel like I, where I feel like I can make the most inroads. And I, I really have to come back to the fact that at the root and at the, at the foundation level, I am absolutely passionate about education. And I really see myself far more as an educator now, a lot less as a clinician, but all, of course, all those many years of clinical practice are, necess uh, are necessary to really have developed me into the educator I am. But one of the things that became really clear to me is that as I was taking a lot of courses and studying with a lot of people is that there's a lot of 
wonderful, outstanding practitioners out there who attempt to share what they've discovered or learned, and they're just bad teachers. And that's not uh, a fault of their own. It's just, you know, it's a recognition that teaching is a very different skill. And I really felt that um, at a certain level, in order to share a lot of the things that I had learned and also to, you know, to really help other practitioners develop, we needed to have some people in our field that were absolutely devoted to best practices and highest quality educational endeavors. And that's something that I really was passionate about. So um, I had uh, closed down my clinical practice and had been since that time devoting myself, you know, a hundred percent to educational stuff, both in the classroom. But then of course I started looking into uh, online education uh, strategies back in the early two thousands. So this was not a, you know, like a, a pandemic rush for me, like it was for so many other people. I was looking at the online environment because of the capability I saw for helping to develop some of those clinical reasoning skills in a much more effective way than in a two-day weekend workshop in the classroom, which is what most of the CE courses were. So, you know, I've been looking at a lot of different types of, of teaching environments and trying to see, you know, what is the best environment for teaching what kinds of skills? You know, sometimes the classroom is the best environment. Sometimes, uh, you know, an online uh, structure is the best environment for teaching critical thinking processes, for example. Was there a particular point, I'm actually asking this for myself because I feel like I'm in a similar situation to where you were a few years ago where I'm being pulled in all these directions and frankly, I'm pretty burnt out. And uh, right now my practice is two and a half days a week and then I'm teaching uh, in a local college the rest of the time. And then I've also, I also teach CEU courses and I've got the podcast and the blog and stuff. So needless to say, I'm not slowing down, but was there a particular point in time or a particular event that caused you to shift this focus or even a particular process that you took to come to the reckoning that education is where you're at more so than clinical practice? Because I feel as though I need to uh, seek out whoever that person was or go through the same process <laughs> right. myself. Yeah. You know, I think it just gets to a point of, of self-reflection. I mean, I, I felt like a lot of catalyst for me was when I started seeing a lot of mistakes happening you know, I was dropping a lot of balls, you know, things were being incomplete. I was, you know, having situations where like I was not missing client appointments, but like forget that I had, you know, certain things scheduled with, with clients a certain day, cause I had planned a day to do something else. Or, and I was, you know, I had like a course coming up over the weekend and I hadn't prepared for it cause I'd had a busy week. And then that was cutting into, of course, my personal life outside of the office. Cause I'd have to work nights, weekends, and, you know, any other type of spare moments that I could find. And, you know, I just began to really look at and question what is, what is the quality of life that I'm creating? Because it's not getting easier, it's getting harder. And I got to just recognize what is it that uh, is going to help me manage this a little bit. Now, of course, that also plays into a very big business decision, because uh, you've got to decide like, well, is there enough way to generate revenue to keep, you know, supporting my family and doing all this kind of stuff. If I stop my clinical practice and focus all exclusively on education and some other things. And, you know, at the same time too, I had written a book that was self-published and being distributed to massage schools. So I was also a publishing house on top of all this other stuff and trying to manage, you know, school orders and all this kind of stuff. And so it was just, yeah, it was just too much. And, and so I think for me, it was a matter of, seeing mistakes being made and things not getting done. And then you, you recognize that at a certain point you're chasing too many rabbits. And here's the other thing, just for the sake of honesty is that uh, I still do that because I still, you know, 
encounter great ideas about, oh, this would be really cool. You know, I'd love to explore doing something like this. And I get an idea and like I start, you know, going down this rabbit hole with this. And I think, you know, like I'm still really trying to just do a good job of this basic stuff of running the education business. And now I'm off on this whole other tangent of an idea of things. And I got to be careful about how much I get sucked into those kinds of things. It's that's so funny because um, Ashley, who was on the podcast last week, she works closely with me and she just started her teaching uh, career at a college on the, on the East coast of Canada. And I almost had that exact same conversation with her, which she was sort of saying, you know, after her first day of teaching, she was feeling not only a lot of gratitude, but also like what's next. And I said, well, welcome. You're going to have so many more of these exact days. Uh, And you know, this, this just never goes away. And I think obviously successful people kind of have that built in. Do you miss clinical practice at all? I do. Yeah. I like that process of being in the the clinical environment with somebody and knowing that you know a lot of what I'm doing may be dramatically changing their life experience and helping them because I had some you know like like all of us some incredible experiences in the clinic with things where I really felt like I did something that that changed somebody's life and helped them you know got them out of pain or whatever it was and that is highly rewarding so I do miss that facet of it but there's also another part of this for me is that I love love, love being in the education environment and seeing that light bulb go off with people and recognizing when somebody gets it and gets a concept and an idea. And I start thinking about when they get this concept and idea, they're going to help this large number of people in their practice. And I'm doing this with this large number of students. Then think about the impact that that can have on, you know, really helping a whole lot more people you know, get out of pain and live more fulfilling lives and that sort of thing. So, you know, Trish, try to balancing it all there. I love when students go on to produce, you know, really great careers or uh, go into their own niche market and build out their career the way that they want. I think that this field is incredibly rewarding. You know, I think we're both biased, but it's probably the best career on on the planet, according to me. And there's so many different avenues that you can go from clinical practice to education, um, special areas of interest and that type of thing. Right now in your education, is it mostly focused towards your own business and your online platforms? Or are you also teaching at, in the college setting as well? Yeah, so I'm not doing any more um, entry-level education at this stage. It's all um, continuing education courses. And right now, most exclusively online just because of COVID. So I'm not tra- I haven't been traveling since the whole COVID outbreak started. So, I mean, and that was a major shift in a change because that had, you know, like so many people whose businesses were impacted by this, that was a big impact as well, because I had also stopped publishing my book right uh, like two months before uh, the COVID shutdown happened. I, uh, you know, we made a decision to pull our book from all the schools that were purchasing it from us because it was, in my opinion, out of date and badly in need of, of updating. And I just wanted to, I didn't want to continue to put a lot of the, that stuff out there in that particular format. So when COVID hit and that the the book income was gone and the traveling workshop income was gone, it was all exclusively on our online program. So that was a, a business challenge, just like many people had had a lot of different kinds of business challenges come up with that. But again, it's I really had a single-minded dedication to producing really super high quality online learning experiences, not just throwing a bunch of stuff on the web. And this is, you know, something I had been working on for already almost two decades. So it has continued to be a very fulfilling and rewarding thing for me. And I just, 
I am constantly amazed at the quality of some of the work that the students produce uh, in this program. And it's just really inspiring for me as an educator, because I know a lot of people who are educators right now. I have, you know, educators in my family. I have a, you know, my sister-in-law is a college teacher. My brother-in-law is a high school teacher. And, you know, we have all a lot of education discussions around the dinner table and so many teachers in, in the traditional classroom environments uh, in the schools are just burned out and ready to quit just because so many things are challenging for them right now. And, and for me, I thank my lucky stars that I get to work with the students that I do because the people who come to work here know it's not an easy road. That's going to be a challenging uh, work process, but they put forth great effort and I really see them learning things. And that's, that's always continually inspiring to me. One of the coolest things that I've heard you say, I think it was on maybe Jamie, because uh, you were on Jamie and Eric's, or no, you had Jamie and Eric on I your I had them podcast. on ours, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. yeah and I, I think you, I was listening to it, and you were saying something to the effect of, you know, I've been in this career a really long time. I've published a lot of content, and a lot of it has been, frankly, wrong or something yeah, like that. That's right. <laughs> and it was just, you know, it was such a, it was such a funny little moment, but, it, you know, I can relate to that so much where yeah. and I've said a ton of wrong things and I've got videotapes of me teaching 10 or 12 years ago and I'm frankly embarrassed about what I'm saying, but I am totally okay with that because I, I number one, have learned that, you know, the, the more I research, the less I know and I do no longer claim to have the answers. I am just a guy with a passion for the human body, I read things and then I present them to other people. And if you'd like to consume my content, that's great. But I guarantee that some of it will be wrong at some point. Yeah. There's that famous quote from, um, I think it was the, I can't remember who said it, maybe in that, the guy, and I can't remember his name now, that, that's considered the father of evidence-based medicine that said something like, you know, one third or two thirds of the things that you learn here in medical school are going to be out of date in five years problem is we don't know which two thirds that is, you know, and that's, that's kind of where we are to a certain degree, but, you know, I, I've had all kinds of situations like that and, and think that, you know, especially if you're an educator and you're going to stay relevant as an educator, you have to be okay being wrong and saying, you know, like some of what I was talking about five, 10 years ago or something like that. It's just, you know, it's not accurate based on our current understanding of things. You know, I was on a, as a social media um, forum recently, uh, there was this discussion thread where uh, this topic came up and somebody was referencing something that was in my book and saying, you know, that they, they believe this was the way to be addressing it because, you know, Whitney's been around for a long time and he's a good authority on this. And I, ch- I chimed in the discussion. I said, you know what? I agree with the person who's arguing against you because even though this stuff is in my book, it's in my opinion, not accurate any longer. And that's, that's the unfortunate thing about what happens when you make a video, make a book, you know, produce content. It's out there and it's always going to be out there, but it may not continue to be uh, accurate or right for a long time. And the more flexible you, know, you can be and, and understand that, you know, you may need to change some things uh, over time. That's those are the educators I really respect, the people who are able to do that and not get you know caught up in in being rigidly attached to uh, a particular system. I've had people come at me for some of the guests that I've had on the podcast unfairly, completely unfairly in my opinion, because they will, you know, take, let's say, again, I I take a piece of your book from 20 years ago, and then 
now all of a sudden, 20 years later, you're completely discredited presently for something that you wrote 20 years ago because right. it's quote, quote unquote, not correct. And maybe this yeah. person is essentially they're trolling you because they haven't looked at all of the your life's work and they take mm -hmm. again this reductionist view of also you've written an entire book and maybe they're taking like one paragraph or one sentence or what have you that was the best available evidence at the time and then choosing to throw it at you 20 years later like yeah. it's just a little bit ridiculous how some yeah. of this stuff goes on online but that's the nature of social media yeah with you pulling your book i mean that's a huge decision because ultimately from a business standpoint you know that you could have just made more money in selling the book the way that it is and everyone would have bought it i guess that goes to show you're really after trying to get the most up-to-date information where is the book at now yeah so you know for me this comes back down to a number of things and i'll you know be completely honest that i'm not the best well, I was going to say, I'm not the best business person out there. That is if you measure business by the amount of money that you make, because I've made enough uh, errors and, and um, you know, uh, failures and things like that along my career that were probably poor decisions around, you know, how to make more money. But I am really, really strongly influenced by my father, who was a salt of the earth craftsman and and he taught me from the time i was young he said do really good work and be honest and you know for me that has been far more important than the amount of money that has come from those things so you know when i look at that i was like again in the book is another one of those projects i think there's a lot of really good stuff uh, in this book it's one of the first you know books that was written specifically for massage therapists about orthopedic assessment and there's still a lot of good concepts in there but there's a lot of things I would do really differently. And there's a lot of content in there that I would change. And so what we're trying to do right now is sort of morph a lot of the current content more into the online program and a lot of those kinds of resources, because they're far easier to update uh, and keep current than a print textbook is. My idea uh, or ideal of situation is that I produce another print version of something that becomes more like a workbook. Um, where a lot of the content is produced and distributed through the online program and the, and the print book is for a reference because a lot of people like having that kind of reference to easily look something up and grab it and hold it in your hand and all that kind of thing. There's a lot of value to a print textbook, but it's hard to update um, and keep current um, compared to, to those kind of resources that can be. And so many more of the learners these days are liking to consume content in a multimedia context, which means video, audio, uh, and, and, you know, my thing is a lot about educational methodologies to like interactive learning experiences where people are really having to interact with the learning environment, not just, you know, sit there passively and watch stuff on the screen because that's not really the best strategies for, for good learning practices. So I'm, you know, constantly looking at new uh, delivery methods and new um, means of getting that same kind of content packaged and produced in different ways that it could possibly be consumed. Yeah, that's really cool. I know that that's something I'm going to be looking at for some of my stuff moving forward as well. I was having a conversation with somebody from a publishing company the other day in reference to a college textbook, and I asked her the question, how many people are purchasing hand textbooks on a percentage? And she said in Canada, I don't know if this is true in the U.S. or not, she said 3%, and I thought she said 30%, and she said Holy no, 3% of our 
our business is in in the sale of hard copy textbooks compared to what wow. they were. Huh. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I think that there's definitely value to having that hard copy, making notes, carrying it around. I like yeah. something about having that tangible textbook, but that's a really cool idea of having the online stuff because as you said, it is a lot easier to update and then having the workbook in conjunction with that. Yeah. And a lot of this goes back to, again, for me, a lot of it is is into looking at ideal learning strategies. So for example, if you're presenting some kind of content which really is most accurately presented and represented with a long form of text. And maybe that is some kind of, you know, elaboration on a certain topic or something like that. That's something that would really work well as a piece of the print medium, more so than reading a whole bunch of text on the computer screen time after time. So when, when is one of those methods better than the other, when it comes to interactivity, there just isn't really a a comparison. You can't have the degree of interactivity with a print textbook that you can have with an online learning experience. So taking, you know, what's the best format for each one of those things for the thing that it's meant to be doing is really, I think, the best way to, to do that. But, you know, back to what you're saying, too, about the, the, the textbook publisher, a lot of this, so much of this is influenced by the textbook, the college textbook industry, which has been getting hammered in recent years, and I think justifiably so for the outrageous cost of textbooks and the, the publishing practices in the, the textbook publishing industry where they, you know, update a textbook every two or three years so that everybody has to buy the new edition. And that ends up just costing the students horrendously larger amounts of money for not that much better of a product. Especially in some of the core competency programs that aren't changing that much. Like, an anatomy, a physiology, a pathology textbook where these concepts, uh, generally speaking, will have very, very minute changes in them. The textbook will be six or 800 pages long and there might be a couple of uh, little revisions. And I think that, as you said, therefore, people just aren't buying the hard copy um, anymore. And that's why people are moving towards these digital eBooks and interactive textbooks, which I think does give a, a pretty cool experience for the learner as well. And as as uh, you said previously, it's really, really hard. And that's one of the things I'm struggling with in my courses, particularly the the hands-on, quote-unquote, portion of them, whether that's be assessing or exercise-based. And having to now teach that on a di- digital platform has been uh, quite challenging for me. I lucky, Luckily, my brother is a producer and is able to bring in different camera angles and really, mm-hmm. really high quality. So I've been lucky in that respect. Very, very yeah. lucky. I don't know if you've run into the same thing where it's, it's just, it has become challenging where uh, you'd much prefer to have somebody just on the table in front of you be able to, you know, just go through with the, the person actually in person. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the difficulty and the challenge in an online learning uh, experience is the, uh, the inability to ask an immediate question about something that's relevant to what you're learning. And that is, of course, pretty right now, pretty irreplaceable for classroom instruction. That's one of the things that really makes classroom instruction shine. So, you know, again, this is the recognition that there is no perfect animal. And, uh, you know, it's so funny, like I, I am involved with a, a, quite a number of education um, forums, Facebook groups, and, you know, discussion groups, things like that in the education world. And, you know, there's been a lot of backlash against online education after the COVID era and everybody talking about, you know, how bad it is in relation to what we were doing in the classroom. And, you know, a lot, there's, there's a lot of people who are saying like, 
this is interesting, you know, that that you're you're comparing emergency remote teaching versus classroom ta- training and not best practices in online education because they're two very different animals. We really never have established that our method of classroom teaching is the gold standard for how people should be learning because the reality is our traditional classroom method is based a lot more on the industrial model of trying to get everybody to do one thing exactly the same way, putting them all in the classroom, you know, same age groups moving through the, the learning experience at the same time. A lot of this is really a lot more based in the, the whole industrial system and a lot less about, you know, what is a real ideal learning experience. And the great benefit of some of the online strategies is the capability to create more personalized learning so that a person can go at a different pace. Like if you really get something and you're you know on it, move ahead faster, you know, go through stuff and dig into it in more depth. If you're really struggling with something, take more time, rewind a video, go through an interactive exercise again, do something, you know, ask the instructor questions about it. You can't do that in the classroom. You can't create that personalized pacing for things in the classroom. So every learning environment has its benefits and drawbacks. And certainly when we talk about, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that I think there's been so much backlash against online education in the massage world is everybody says, well, we're a hands-on profession. We can't teach stuff online because there's a lot of emphasis on the necessity or the benefit of teaching, you know, psychomotor movement skills with your hands. It's best done in a physical classroom, in a, in a live, you know, interaction with somebody, but that's not all there is to what we do. I mean, a lot of what we do is, is far more complex than just what you're doing with your hands. You know, I like, I ask the question for people like, how do you tell the difference between, you know, a nerve entrapment problem, nerve entrapment problem versus some type of systemic disorder just with your hands? It is a much more complex thought process engaged in doing that. And that's one of the things that can really be taught well in this environment. So it's all about, I think, finding the ideal match between what you're trying to teach and get across and what's the the ideal delivery platform for doing that. Yeah. And also just saying to people, you know, try to take some of these concepts and, and consume them in a way that is most beneficial to you. Because like you said, we can provide all these different avenues of learning, whether that be visual, psychomotor, auditory, going through active engagement in activities, et cetera. But the nuances of learning, again, are so specific to that individual. I know that if I hear something, I retain it almost all and almost immediately. And I didn't know that until, honestly, probably two or three years ago, where I would have, uh, having started the podcast, I would listen to people's podcasts just to look at, you know, tone of voice and how people carried themselves and stuff like that. And What I learned very quickly was, look, I'm retaining all of this information far quicker than if I was consuming it in a book or online or writing it down. And I really wish that I had have come to that understanding much earlier in my career because it would have made things so much easier. And so I, I really relay that on to people as I teach them to say, look, it might be that you are more of an auditory learner, a visual learner, a psychomotor learner. You might be more of a doer and really coming up with all of the elements to try and make the experience as easy for you as possible. Because if I'm forcing you into a box of learning to say that it has to be done in this way, you might struggle because you're not working towards your strengths. You might be pinned into a spot where you're forced to harness and survive on your weaknesses. 
Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the things that we're trying to explore in, in more detail, certainly from the educational realm. And it is honestly harder to do some of those explorations for the most part in the classroom because it is one pace fits all. You know, the instructor is taking the entire class through some activity, doing things a certain way. Now, there are certainly ways to personalize some of the learning processes through the classroom. But, you know, in, in the realm where I'm doing most of my teaching now in the continuing education realm, you know, you're with people for a two-day weekend course that's eight hours long. And, you know, you get a lot of people who are, quite frankly, close to burnout after a few hours because it's really hard to continue. You you reach something called cognitive load, which is, you know, the, the inability uh, to continue taking in so much different uh, kinds of information, things like that. So it, it is somewhat difficult to to adjust to many of those different types of, of, of learning strategies and learning methodologies in that kind of, you know, forced intensive two-day workshop course. This is where I think, you know, we need more educational innovation. Uh, and this is one of the things that, you know, I'm, I've been passionately focused on is trying to find ways to help people who are the educators in our field learn more about some of these different alternative educational strategies and methods and find out, you know, how do we really do the very best job at training and preparing the professionals of the future? Because, that's the whole future of our profession is how well we're training and preparing some of these individuals. Yeah. Really trying to bridge the gap about, like you said earlier, the entry level skills to practice and bringing in some of this more current and evidence-based elements of practice, I think is always the challenge. And part of that reason might be again, your comment about textbooks and printed forms of uh, content that are being consumed is that they do take such a long time to update I mean, some of the textbooks, and as you alluded to with your book, some of the foundational textbooks of our field are incredibly out of date simply because there haven't been any updated versions of them that are relevant to today's current concepts about manual therapy. Mm -hmm. And there's so much that has changed over the last 25 years in our field that a lot of the narratives and information around some of the techniques and principles and how we interact with people is entirely different. So the challenge then becomes as well, if these textbooks are still circulating at entry levels of practice, how do we bridge that gap? And I don't really know that there's a real easy answer there. You know, I don't know if you have uh, opinions or thoughts on, on that. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, there's a quote and I can't, again, I can't remember who this was attributed to of, of saying something like, you know, it's hard to get someone to change their understanding about something if they're income depends on the not understanding it. And I see that being the case with a lot of those textbooks, resources, and other kinds of educational things that are out there that, you know, if somebody's really invested in a product or a system or something like that, and that is their income based on that system and things change around the understanding of how that system, product, book, whatever it is, is um, representing things, it's difficult for that to to, to change for that person because their, their whole business may be built around this, you know, and that's a lot of the argument that um, came up. I think it was Paul Ingram's uh, term that he coined about the modality empires. Um, and I think that's where we see a lot of that uh, playing out for people. So it's absolutely essential. I think that, that the individual uh, practitioners become more critical thinkers and, uh, you know, question some of these concepts, ideas out there, but look for other ways that you can really enhance your learning from those 
individuals who are pushing the envelope and who are willing, uh, willing, very willing and ready to say, hey, I may be wrong about this or what I said about this sometime in the past is not necessarily accurate. Things are changing. Let's look at this uh, in a different way. And and that's unfortunately not as common as it ideally should be, I think. I think you're right about that. I think a lot of this does rely on business practices and, and money, and there's certainly ethical considerations as well. Speaking to to the book and your area of special interest has always sort of seemed to be and correct me if I'm wrong, more sort of orthopedic-driven, MSK-driven uh, type conditions. How have you taken the evolution of how orthopedic assessment, and I think I heard uh, you and Eric and Jamie having a conversation around this, particularly sensitivity and specificity in orthopedic tests, I think was the topic of discussion at the time when I heard it. How have you taken the evolution of how manual orthopedic testing has just done that, evolved, and used that in your teachings now versus, say, 20, 30 years ago? Yeah, so I think, you know, early on, 20, 30 years ago, when I first was producing stuff, and, and you know, my assessment book first came out in uh, 1995, I think it was, 1995, and then the, the more current edition that was a, a whole lot more robust, you know, the early editions was something that I'm you know, quite embarrassed about because it was all self-published and those were in the very early days of self-publishing. So things were pretty rudimentary, but you know, the, the more recent edition of this had come out in 2006 and there was still an emphasis, a strong emphasis in a lot of the training programs and a lot of lit- literature I was reading on, you know, the, the use of special orthopedic tests for identifying and, and sort of naming and, and identifying problems. And, you know, what I was seeing happen a lot was that people were especially the way they were using the book was, uh, and, and this goes not only for my book, but all the other major orthopedic assessment books as well, is there was a, a, a very strong emphasis, and in my opinion, an overemphasis on these special orthopedic tests as almost a laundry list of things that people would run through. You know, somebody comes in, they've got shoulder pain. And uh, so you start running through the list of uh, shoulder tests that are in that book. But that's not taking into consideration the process of things that should be happening before them, which is a very detailed history, you know, palpation methods, you know, observing things and going through and analyzing what motions are causing problems, what motions are not causing problems. And that's that's the harder stuff, I think, is, for example, looking at the patterns. When you just talk about the physical examination process, looking at the patterns of responses from active motion, passive motion, and manual resistive tests, that tells you so much about the nature of soft tissue problems. And what I was seeing occurring was everybody's just jumping onto all these orthopedic tests without doing all the other stuff first. And to me, they were missing the boat on a complex and thorough assessment. And you know why? Part of it is because it takes longer and it also takes more analysis. It takes a better understanding of how to interpret the results from some of these different types of uh, things people say, what you see, what you're palpating, and what you know the results of those procedures are. It's a lot easier to just jump onto that list of, of tests. And even if they don't have great specificity or sensitivity, they're listed in the books and just run through those tests and you know make a, a jump to an assumption, oh, this person's got so-and-so problem or this thing's happening with them because they have a positive result of this test. And that just, um, to me, it was always a, it was, it was like looking uh, only at a piece of the much larger puzzle that we were missing a whole lot of things uh, by, by going at things that way. And that's 
one of the reasons that I really wanted to move away from that strong emphasis on all the special orthopedic tests and really go back to emphasizing some of the other parts of the musculoskeletal assessment process, you know, details about the history and understanding what happens with somebody and details of recognizing the patterns of, you know, if somebody has pain with, you know, active shoulder flexion, active abduction, but not passive and the pain during a manual resistive test, what does that mean? What does that pattern tend to indicate? Um, and again, it's just, it's a much more complex analysis process, but to me, that's what gives you way more va- uh, accurate and valid information about um, those kind of evaluation methods. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with Taylor Laviolette. I'm not sure if you know him, but he's a RMT at a BC. Uh, he was on the podcast at the beginning of last season, season number yeah, two. Yeah, I remember, I remember listening to that episode, yeah. Yeah, and we had a similar conversation where, you know, he was saying that a lot of the time, I'm not uh, resorting to my orthopedic test because I feel as though the person has whatever it is, an, an angry shoulder or an angry knee. And certainly at the period in time, and this is largely happening in the interview and the, and the intake that you're taking with the individual, you know, if you have those specific mechanisms of injury that might warrant biological change in tissue or there, you know, there's a presentation of a red flag or you feel as though the condition might be a more MSK related yeah, you might rely a little bit more on some of those tests to maybe try and assess for structural integrity, for example. But a lot of the time, if you feel as though you don't need to go down that path and you've got enough information from the particular intake and you feel as though you understand the situation that the person's in or you have to produce some sort of hybrid of those two situations, you're far better off. And you know, you alluded to the fact that it maybe more of a complex process, which I agree with, but it might lend to you making decisions more quickly in the end, in the context of your one hour appointment, because Mm -hmm. the time that we're uh, both guilty now for forgetting quotes, but one of the quotes that I uh, heard, who was it from? I can't remember, but it was something about, you, you know, the time that you spend in a health history intake or a patient intake saves you in yeah. your mm-hmm. orthopedic examination. And I think there's so much truth to that in getting a full psychosocial look at the person, getting a full look at the potential biological contributing factors, and then having an idea of, okay, I think it's this, this, and this, and maybe an orthopedic test is part of that process, and maybe it's not, uh, I think is so, so important. Yeah, you know, I I sort of view a lot of the special orthopedic tests as icing on the cake. And the problem is people have made that the cake. They've made that process, you know, the special orthopedic test be the cake itself. And that's where I think, you know, you're missing so many of those kinds of things. So that was a study I read a number of years ago that was done with a bunch of orthopedists who had suggested that probably close to 75% of the time they could arrive at an accurate diagnosis just with a well-taken history. The emphasis there being with a well-taken history, because too often that's not done thoroughly, but that is exactly, you know, what you were saying too, is that when you delve into that in great detail, you can get a lot of really relevant and valid information that's going to lead you in other directions there. But the the tests can be, the special orthopedic tests in particular can be sort of the elusive shiny object that makes you want to like jump to these things and then jump to conclusions way earlier than, than you really need to be. Well, and I just felt, I remember as a student, I just felt so cool when I was learning orthopedic tests. Like I just felt, I just felt so cool. I felt like I had the answers. You felt, 
you know, just really like the sense of importance and you were finding all the answers and you knew that, you know, Hawkins Kennedy, the person has whatever subacromial or supraspinatus impingement, like that's what they have. And you figured yeah. this out and it was just such a neat, it was, you know, even when I think back to it, it was such a cool, neat experience. And then yeah. you, you get into practice and you're like, oh, this isn't necessarily how it works. Yeah. Well, it's a, you know, this is a perfect example of that whole method of reductionistic thinking that we have a, had a tendency to really slip into in our whole educational system that we can find these neat little packages and categories for things that'll show up just right because we do this procedure this particular way. But that, you know, you start working in clinical practice and pretty soon you realize it's a very messy environment that doesn't fit that very well at all. And that's one of the reasons why I love it so much, clinical practice. It's just every day is is something, you know, new and like I said, you might see a lot of the same thing and it all presents differently. And some people resolve the, themselves in a very, very short period of time and other people take a little bit longer and you never really understand why. And you always go back to the drawing board and yeah. analyze the, the person's journey with you and maybe the advice or the particular activity modifications or exercises you gave them to try and understand it. But I guess that's why it's called clinical practice and that you're always kind of in practice. That's you're right. Always learning. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Here's a question for you. Having been in the, the career for such a long time, what advice are you giving to brand new therapists now about the field in general and um, whether it's business related or practice related? Are you giving sort of the same advice over to the same people? Because I know that there are a lot of newer therapists and students that listen to the podcast as well. Yeah, I would say some of the advice is similar and some of it is different. Certainly from a business perspective, the world is very different than it was when I got into practice. Because, you know, those days, building your practice meant going and putting flyers on on the cork bulletin board in the health food store and, you know, putting a little brochure together and passing it around the whole marketing and, and promotion of your business thing is, is just a very different animal nowadays for clinical practice. So as much as a lot of people don't like to think about this, you know, learning some more specifics about running a good solopreneur business uh, is essential, I think, for your long-term longevity if you're going to stay into this as a solo practitioner. But the, uh, the flip side is that now there are so many other opportunities for massage therapists to work as employees, either in clinical environments or you know, with other types of organizations or things like that. But in terms of, you know, your individual direction and path, you know, I really just encourage people to constantly stay curious, constantly push the envelope. I know it feels difficult and I know it feels like there's more important to do, but things to do, but stay current with reading and studying things because there's a, a a likelihood, a much greater likelihood that you're going to get to a place of feeling kind of burned out in your practice and uninspired if you don't keep growing yourself and pushing yourself forward. So I think that's such an essential part of mental health and, you know, mental and physical, emotional well-being for continuing to be a practitioner who can help people is, is you know, keeping yourself inspired and enthusiastic about what you're doing. And I'll be the first to admit that's not always easy. You know, when you can get back to that, sounds kind of corny, but we talk about that a lot in business practices, get back to that whole thing about creating a mission statement about why you're doing this. Why do you get up every day and go into the clinic and do this? And, you know, for a lot of people, there's a, a really important part of recognizing their role in helping to reduce pain in people's lives and reduce pain in the world. And for me, that's a lot of what that was about. 
and continues to be about for, for what I do when I get up and do this every day is recognizing that whole bigger picture. And, and when you can connect with that, that, I think that really takes you through some of the more difficult and challenging times as well. Being sort of submerged in, in the education space and, and continuing to educate therapists within the U.S., what are some of the biggest challenges you see massage therapists facing in, in the U.S. right now? Some of the biggest challenges I see have to do with timing and demographics and things like that in that, that, you know, and this, this happened in a number of other countries as well. I believe you all experienced this, but probably not to the same degree that we did here in the U S which was back around the, you know, 2006, 2007 period, early, early to mid two thousands. We had just a, a huge boom of massage schools opening and developing and training practitioners. There was a time period that we had, I don't know, close to like, I think 1,500 schools in the country. And as a result of that, we didn't have enough qualified faculty to staff all of those schools. And unfortunately, I think we have created not only from the people who went through school at that time, many of whom have left the profession now, but we did create and have uh, lingering, created a whole generation of practitioners who didn't get the level of training that they really needed to have gotten. And as a result of that, they are the teachers of the future. And many of them have become the teachers now in schools and training programs that were educated on a shaky foundation. And I think that has really been a serious impairment for the profession in terms of us moving forward and being able to recognize how to grapple with the challenges that we have and look at, you know, how to become more um, well-rounded professionals and things like that. You know, we don't grow up in an academic environment, so people don't understand things like, you know, basic fundamentals of academic integrity, you know, plagiarism, you know, there's, there's problems with, I hear people all the time talking about, you know, somebody, I posted this on my website and somebody just came and took it and put it on their website and did this kind of stuff. There's just all kinds of levels of professionalism that don't get adequately shared and taught to people about, you know, how to be a good, a well-rounded professional. And a lot of it just comes from challenges or problems with basic level education. And I am not really, really sure how to fix that problem other than just go back to the drawing board and really try to beef up what we're doing with things. Now, I will say this. One of the things that I'm very pleased about is this is one, you know, everybody's ready to bash all the problems that happen with social media and the internet and all that kind of thing. But one of the really good things that has come out of this is the ability to listen to and hear input from great practitioners all over the world in a very short period of time. And as a result of that, we've developed some much more astute, knowledgeable, really bright thinking individuals drawn to this particular field who are questioning things, pushing the envelope. Uh, and to me, that's really inspiring is that, you know, we see a lot of that kind of thing and that's, that's a good omen for the future. I think so. I'm really encouraged about that. Yeah, it's really cool even to be able, you know, to have the podcast and connect with people all around the world through technology. And uh, one of the things that I've learned about since doing the podcast is like so many people are just willing to come on it and people like yourself and, you know, people that I've felt have been really important as part of the stepping stones that I've taken in my career are more than willing, most of them to come on and have a conversation, which to me has been really, really cool and really, really fulfilling for myself. Yeah. Is there any chance that the massage therapy industry in the in the U.S. 
has some sort of national overseeing body at some point in time, or are they that far off that that probably won't be something in the near future that will happen? In my wildest dreams, I'd love, love to believe that'll happen before I'm gone, but I don't know. You know, uh, after seeing this happen for three decades and a lot of the same conversations happening over and over and over again and not getting anywhere, I just don't know. But then the other part of this is that recognizing that change is often slow and, you know, that water can smooth a very jagged rock, but it doesn't happen overnight. And so I like to hold out the belief that this will uh, move, change, and improve over time. And I see a lot of really talented individuals putting forth tremendous effort to try to make some of these things happen. So I'm going to right now stay on the side of of continuing to work towards it, continuing to move towards those those goals and opportunities, and and hopefully just you know recognize that I'm only going to be a stepping stone along the path of getting to where we eventually get to. Um, so I will be the best stepping stone that I can be, and hopefully you know, give some buoyancy and direction and help to those people who will come behind me. And, and you know, that, that'll be my piece. Uh, I may never see it get to where I really want to see the profession get to before I'm gone, but um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a, a significant role in trying to help us uh, bridge the gap and get to that place. I think that's a perfect place to, to wrap this up. Whitney, where can people find you if they want to learn about your courses, continuing education, or uh, just have a chat with you online? Absolutely. I am over on the interwebs at the at Academy of Clinical Massage.com. Our company is called the Academy of Clinical Massage, but the website is Academy of Clinical Massage.com. And then of course you can find me on social media through my name and, and also through the business name as well. Great. Well, uh, like I said, at the top of the podcast, uh, you've been a, a, a person that I've looked up to for a really, really long time. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and have a chat with me. Folks, I hope that you've also found this episode to be of value to you. Have a great day and a great weekend, and we'll uh, see you in the next one.